For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and welcome to our latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter. Uh, the fire is out temporarily, reducing our carbon footprint, but only to get the hearth cleaned and inspected so that it can blaze that much more brightly. And speaking of things that have gone out, the Ukraine war seems to put a serious damper on this whole notion that getting rid of affordable, reliable energy would make us wealthier as well as cleaner, safer, and more sophisticated. And now in Canada, the government's claim that as its carbon tax climbs toward the target $170 a ton, most households would be better off has been doused by the federal parliamentary budget officer. Yves Giroux says that by 2030-31, to 31, most households will pay more than they receive. And of course, this finding really shouldn't surprise us. You know, the contrary claim was always a big problem for three reasons. And the first one is, if you're trying to price gasoline out of reach, giving people back the extra money they paid just defeats the purpose. But second, the math involved in most households being better off relied on not counting all the indirect costs of depressing prosperity, as was pointed out a year ago by the Fraser Institute. And third, there's no free lunch. It's just not possible that discarding something as incredibly useful in our daily lives as affordable gasoline, natural gas, and heating oil, even if you had to do it on other grounds, it's just not possible that it would make us richer, not poorer. As Giroux commented dryly, quote, The moment you decide to decarbonize the economy in a relatively short period of time, and we're talking here less than 10 years to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, it's clear that there's going to be a cost, end quote. The strange thing is, it apparently wasn't clear to politicians, but it's certainly becoming clear to the public as they go to fill up the tank at the gas station. Now, in the newsletter, we also attempted to put out a reported fire at the North Pole. NASA blared that they'd found 2022 Arctic winter sea ice 10th lowest on record, which only means since 1979, the beginning of modern satellite records. So we're barely in the top quarter for the last 40 years, as the cyclical buildup of ice from 1940 to its 1979 peak seems to be reversing itself. And to belabor a point here, the Northwest Passage was navigable by small craft in the 1940s and in the 1900s. Arctic ice is cyclical, which means the retreat after 1979 is no sign of anything other than natural fluctuations. But then the Associated Press roared in with, quote, hot poles, Antarctica, Arctic, 70 and 50 degrees above normal, end quote. Really? No. As Anthony Watts indignantly declared, quote, these claims can't be verified since they were the results from a set of weather model simulations indicating variations of above normal temperatures for the regions, not actual surface temperatures measured by ground-based weather stations, end quote. The computer models got rid of the thing within days anyway, he says, and then adds, quote, looking at actual data, there's no heat wave at all, end quote. Did anyone really believe Antarctica had somehow soared 70 degrees in a matter of days and that the North Pole was blazing away? Apparently so, but neither is true, nor is either of them credible. Despite which, as the Ukraine war drags on, causing suffering, death, and anxiety about escalation in the short run and worries about security in the long run, some people are still mostly concerned that we might somehow blunder into reliable supplies of energy despite our leaders' best efforts. The New York Times Climate Forward frets, quote, Will this wartime surge end up creating a new generation of infrastructure that locks Europe into the gas habit for longer, end quote? 
And Fatih Birol, who's head of the International Lack of Energy Agency, says, quote, I'm very worried our climate goals may be another victim of Russia's aggression, end quote. Which really is prize blather, since the big risk is replacing Russian natural gas with American natural gas, and nature can't tell the difference between them. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Or at least it should be. Because if you want us to keep annoying the right people with our newsletters and our videos, you, our regular viewers, need to step up with a one-time or monthly contribution. I'm not talking a lot of money, unless you're, like, extra rich. The price of a cup of coffee a month, that's what we need from the 10,000 or so people who tune in weekly. If you do that, the video and the newsletter will keep bringing sanity to the climate debate and to you. And now, back to me. Of course, The Economist is too elegant to sweat, but it does muse in a refined fashion that, quote, the new era will not end the curse of energy crises and autocrats. As Western firms stop producing oil because of greenery and costs, the market share of OPEC plus Russia will grow, giving them more clout. And the transition will give rise to new electrostates, providing green metals such as copper and lithium, where production will still be dangerously concentrated, end quotes. Electrostates? What will they think of next? Apparently it won't be putting if in place of as about that whole stop producing oil thing. In a contrarian piece in Forbes, Tilak Doshi says that before the Ukraine war, people expected a prolonged struggle between, quote, the juggernaut of the climate industrial complex, amalgamating a confluence of elite interests, end quote, and, quote, the hoi polloi, the inchoate mass of working poor and aspiring middle classes who cannot afford virtue signaling, end quote. But then he says, quote, at a stroke, a refreshing energy realism dawned upon European political elites, in particular on the German Green Party, which is a major component of the coalition government, end quote. To which we respond, wanna bet? And apparently not even he does. He goes on to say, quote, the climate emergency narrative is far from being dethroned in elite policy circles, end quote. And then he quotes UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres that, quote, countries could become so consumed by the immediate fossil fuel supply gap that they neglect or kneecap policies to cut fossil fuel use. This is madness, end quote. Well, something is madness. Possibly that since the Ukraine crisis erupted, Canada's prime minister has jetted to Europe twice and within Europe multiple times. Quite the carbon footprint for someone committed to making everybody else reduce theirs. But of course, what he's doing is really important, unlike your shabby life. And, and some people might say, look, what Mr. Trudeau is doing really is important. He's the leader of a G7 nation conferring with allies during a major security crisis. He's doing it so badly it doesn't really count, but yes, if Canada's going to become something other than a superpower at calling for more meetings, we're going to need military hardware, soldiers to use it, and logistical support. And we're going to need a working economy. So all those things are important too, and they all depend on fossil fuels. Nevertheless, the governing Liberal Caucus in Canada just voted against a motion to increase Canadian natural gas exports to Europe, despite the Natural Resources Minister having expressed support for it less than two weeks earlier. These people have a bad habit of running in circles screaming and shouting, but they really mean it about getting rid of fossil fuels no matter what the cost. They're in line with groups like Environmental Defense, which sneered at the proposal to supply more Canadian gas, saying, quote, capitalizing on this tragedy is disgusting, 
and the Suzuki Foundation churned out this boilerplate, quote, Fossil fuel supporters have been using Russia's invasion of Ukraine to promote pipelines. It's time to pull the plug on the misinformation machine, end quote. Well, we're willing to pull the plug on the misinformation machine, but we want to note that all these statements are a useful warning about the real agenda and beliefs of climate alarmists. You know, a lot of reasonable people out there think that what's being proposed is that we take prudent steps against possible future costs of man-made global warming. It's not that they believe there's some overwhelming existential crisis, but they think the bulk of expert opinion does say there are risks down the road and that those risks can be mitigated at modest cost. One analogy you'll hear is that it's like buying fire insurance. You know your house is unlikely to burst into flames, but the cost of it does is very high and the premiums are reasonable. However, as NBC cheerfully reports, Al Gore is still out there telling young people, quote, we cannot continue to use the sky as an open sewer in a way that is absolutely destroying the future, end quote, and quote, I want my grandchildren and yours to live and thrive in a world that is not degraded and destroyed, end quote. And on that apocalyptic basis, he and his oak don't want cautious and reasonable steps. They want a frantic rush to eliminate the energy on which our prosperity and security depend. They want to destroy the future in order to save it. And don't take our word for it that the people making climate policy haven't thought through the consequences of such proposals. Well, okay, do take our word for it, but not entirely. Consider a video on ethanol that's on the popular Engineering Explained YouTube channel. Now you laugh, but they've got that name and 3.18 million subscribers, so it definitely qualifies as popular. And in this particular item, Presenter Jason Fenske describes this new study from the University of Madison, Wisconsin, finding that ethanol's very heavily subsidized fuel additive actually gives off more CO2 than the fossil fuel it supposedly replaces, perhaps as much as a quarter more. So the problem here isn't some denier saying, oh, the more CO2, the merrier. It's someone who believes in man-made climate change, exposing a huge multi-billion dollar program that incidentally also worsens world hunger, but on its own terms, is incredibly stupid. Which surely raises the question, what else don't they understand? And one thing they don't understand is that the Arctic is not blazing away. So, in this week's newsletter, we wrapped up our sunburnt lands up north tour with a reminder that this map from the Government of Canada shows what it hallucinates is happening up that way. And then, the chart you're about to see is from our last virtual visit, to Nanisivik on Baffin Island. It's an old mining town sitting chilly and lonely, population zero, with January winter highs looking about the same as when the record began in 1938. And the same is true of February and March. So at the risk of being called deniers, we must deny that winter in the far north looks anything like the heat-blasted conflagration our government led us to expect we'd find there. On the other hand, while our examination of the latest peer-reviewed survey of extreme weather events has largely rebutted alarmist claims that they're getting worse at all, let alone that man-made warming is causing the deterioration, we have to admit that we did find one kind of catastrophe that appears to have been increasing sharply in the 20th century. Naha, some may cry, proof that humans are upsetting the delicate balance of nature. Except it's reported earthquakes which not even the most lunatic climate alarmist claims are caused by greenhouse gases. Okay, some of them do, but never mind, because the people who publish the data don't even claim there's been an upward trend in actual earthquakes, only in the number that got reported. And those following actual signs, instead of chanting that mantra to cover their hysterical ignorance of the subject, are reminded yet again that data must be treated with care and that correlation is not causation. 
And they're also reminded, thanks to CO2Science.org, that when alarmists start thrashing around saying, well, even if CO2 does promote plant growth, the plants are sicklier, they're less nutritious, and they don't taste as good, they're just making stuff up. In this case, a study of strawberries, Fragaria ananasa, found that, quote, elevated CO2 and higher temperature caused significant increases in totally polyphenol, flavonoid, anthocyanin, and antioxidants in both strawberry cultivars, end quote. In short, they're better for you. And if you think that outcome's hard to hate, you don't know these climate alarmists like we do. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and we shall burn again.